So for, for many different reasons, I have chosen to start a sermon series with you called Heretics in the Battle for Orthodoxy. And my intention over the next several weeks, minus the ones that I won't be preaching, is to delve into Christian doctrine and to help you to understand some of the, the high level doctrinal truths that the Christian church adheres to. Now, right out of the gates, you might be asking, why would you spend time on a Sunday morning teaching doctrine? After all, there may be some marriages here that are a little shaky and we, we might benefit from you know, a 10 point sermon on how to get along better with our spouses. Or we may be having some issues with our children and perhaps some practical teaching on parenting would help or maybe your finances aren't so great. Why not get into the how-tos? Why, why teach this heady stuff? Why not just be practical? Well, there's many reasons why we want to do a good job in the Christian church teaching Christian doctrine. One of the most notable ones is that it affects our approach to God and the way that we worship. The way I conceive of God directly impacts the way I approach him. My understanding of what he has accomplished for me affects my prayer, my ability to ask for forgiveness. My understanding of who I am as a human being affects my outlook on life, the way I interact with other people, the way I treat other people. My understanding of the Holy Spirit affects my communion with God, my ability to pray, my spiritual gifts. My understanding of Satan and demons and angels affects my understanding of the spiritual world and the battle that's raging around us. My understanding of the end times influences the way I live my life in the here and now and how I prepare myself for what is yet to come. So doctrine has huge ramifications, whether we think about it much or not, about our worship, about our approach to God. It also protects us from false teaching and from heresy. Heresy essentially is any opinion that is contrary to scripture that attacks a cardinal truth, a cardinal verity, as we call it, something that's central, something that's core to our faith. And we want to make sure that we don't want to fall into the trap of believing something about God that isn't true or following the wrong path of salvation or staking our lives on truths that are false. So it protects us from false teaching as we grow in our understanding of scripture. It protects us from falsehood. It also protects us from labeling things that are heresy that aren't heresy. So there are, there are core truths to the Christian faith you have to adhere to in order to declare yourself to be a Christian. They're heaven or hell issues. But there are other issues that people have legitimate disagreements on that are distinctives. They're core to the Christian faith. Your salvation doesn't hinge on them. It's not that everybody's right. Someone has to be wrong, but they're, they're secondary to the core creedal truths of, of the scriptures. And sometimes I hear young, well-meaning theologians labeling everything as heresy. I have a different opinion. You're a heretic. I have a different opinion. You're a heretic. Not everything's heresy. There is such a thing as heresy, but not everything falls into that category. And we see that, by the way, in the scriptures because there's different degrees of punishment attached to certain doctrinal impurities. It also helps us to be united as a church. It protects us from schism, from division. It also helps us to, to identify 
correct and potentially root out false brothers that may be in the church that are seeking to propagate doctrines that are dangerous to our faith. Further, it serves to combat religious pluralism. You know what that's like. We live in a culture, it's like anything goes. You might believe that. I believe this. Oh, well, we all just agree to disagree, agree to, agree, agree to disagree and to get along. Well, no, some falsehoods deserve to be confronted straight up. And when we understand the fundamentals of the Christian faith, it allows us to combat false religions, false views of salvation, false views of God. Good theology also helps us to evaluate our music to make sure what we're singing is lined up with scripture, to evaluate Christian books that we might be reading, seminars we might be attending, Christian poetry that we might be reading to make sure it aligns up with scripture. It allows us to do biblical counseling to make sure that when we're counseling people through the issues of life, that we're communicating clearly the truths of God's word and not borrowing from Freudian theory or Jungian theory and desecrating or diminishing the power of God's word to bring about change. And finally, Jesus said, we're supposed to love them, among other things, with this, with our minds. So we're not anti-intellectual. You don't check your brain at the door when you come to church. You're supposed to engage, think, think grand thoughts about God. Think properly about yourself. Think properly about God's purposes and plans. And on and on and on. Paul said to Titus, a young Christian leader in the first century, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Good theology. Theology means God's word. Theo logos. God's word. Good theology leads to doxology. Praise words. Glory to God. So we, we want to understand with our minds what God has said. I know some of you are brainy. You love this stuff. Others are highly relational and may not think in these categories too often. That's fine. God has given a variety of gifts to the Christian church. But all of us will benefit if we grow in our understanding of scripture. And we're gonna introduce you to various terms that you may not have heard before. If you don't remember them, that's totally fine, but lock onto the concepts that they communicate and allow it to affect your worship, your approach to God, your relationships with others, the way you process emotional turmoil, the way you approach God in prayer, the way you worship, the way you sing, and the hope that you have for what is yet to come. So heretics in the battle for orthodoxy, are you ready? What I'm gonna to attempt to do is be clear. I'm never really particularly interested in being agreed with, but I am very interested in being clear. There's nothing worse than a sermon that's not clear. At least it then gives you something to agree or disagree with. So I'm gonna to try to be clear as to what the scriptures teach about these various areas of Christian doctrine. But I'm also gonna be practical because God has spoken truths to us that are meant to affect the way we think, the way we act, and the way we feel. 
But what you need to do is to come to church and put your thinking caps on. Some of you have thinking jobs. Like I think all week, I don't wanna think on Sunday. (laughs) I need a break. Well, you need to think. You need to think more clearly. You need to think grand thoughts about God. We don't wanna encourage people to check their brain at the door when we come to church. I remember many years ago, there was a guy coming out. He says, you know what I like about your church? You guys always put the cookies in the top shelf. What he meant by that is you gotta reach for it a little bit. You know, I gotta I got be on my A game. I gotta, I gotta think, I need to process what's going on. So that's your job. I'll try to be clear. And I want you to process and just think through what we're, we're discussing. Now, let me start by saying this. We value experience. We value emotions. We have, I very much have an experiential relationship with God. I love him. I feel it. His promises stir my heart and mind. I commune with him in worship. I commune with him in prayer. We want to love God with our hearts as the scripture teaches us. But folks, our experience is not the ultimate source of authority. Our experience is not the place that we dredge up our theology from. I'm emphasizing that because sometimes you hear people say, well, I believe this just because I believe it. Okay, well, can you validate it from scripture? No, but I've experienced this. Okay, well, your experience may be legit or it might be because you had bad pizza last night. But the source of authority is not your experience. Our experiences need to be hemmed in by God's word and ideally be a response to what we read or encountered that lines up with God's word. So experience is a blessing, not opposed to experience, but the scriptures is our final and ultimate source of authority. Past generations have wrestled with numerous issues, numerous challenges, attacks on the fundamentals of the faith. Unfortunately, because we live in Western culture, and Western culture is highly individualistic, many people knowingly, more likely unknowingly, come to church and they have a very individualistic understanding of what it means to commune with God. They sort of have this naive notion that it's just me and Jesus and the Holy Spirit hanging out with our Bibles and that's all we need. We're just gonna figure it all out. Well, folks, I'm telling you this straight up. If you spend every day of your life studying the scripture, you would never fully plumb its depths. Your life is just not long enough. The more I study scripture, the more I'm like, man, there's a lot I don't know. So this is why we can benefit when we look back through history and we read about the fights and the battles that past generations fought and how they went to scripture. And it helps to shape our response to much of what takes place in the world today. So it's kind of like, remember the Cole's notes in school where you're sort of cramming for an exam and you're like, there was so much communicated. I'm just gonna read the summary. In many respects, the creeds, the doctrinal statements, the past fights that Christians fought are are a benefit to us. So, So don't put creeds, for example, on par with scripture, but it's to your peril to throw them out the door and say, I don't care, I'm just starting from scratch. You you just don't have enough time to study the scriptures in terms of every possible issue you could discuss. So as we enter into this conversation, I'm gonna introduce you to two historic Christian creeds 
that makes several claims about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and sin and salvation and so forth. And I think those are going, going to be a blessing to us. But before we go any further, I need to describe, I need to uh, uh, define a few terms for you. So first of all, I, I've used the word orthodox. Like orthodox, I thought this was a Protestant church. I didn't know this was a Eastern Orthodox church or a Greek Orthodox church. So what happens in human history is various Christian groups will take a favorite word from theology or from church life and they'll call their denomination that. And then everyone, time goes by and everyone thinks that, oh, to be Orthodox means you're part of the Orthodox church. No, that's not, that's the Orthodox church, but that's not what orthodoxy is about. So the word Catholic means universal. The word orthodox means straight opinion or straight glory. The word Baptist, like there's a lot of Baptist churches, like I guess all they believe is baptism. Well, that's, that's not a denominational word, that's from the Bible, baptism. The Greek word baptizo, which is just transliterated into English is baptism. Presbyterian means elder. So the point I'm trying to make is when you hear the word orthodox, I'm not talking about a denomination or a particular group that has that title. It's a word that historically has been used in biblical discussions to define that which is straight. The opposite of which is heresy or heterodoxy, hetero too. So heterodoxy or heresy is false doctrine that doesn't align with scripture. Theology, means God's word. And what theology does is it explores how biblical doctrines, I'll describe this further in a moment, how biblical doctrines interrelate and are to be understood. So let's say I'm opening up my Bible today and for my personal study, I am going to read the book of Job. And I wanna study Job in detail. So what are some things that I would want to know about Job in order to fully understand the message? Well, I'd wanna find myself a good translation that's accurate, or I'd go back and study Hebrew, for example, and become an expert in Hebrew, if I really wanna go into it deep. But for the average person, you're gonna find a good English translation. You're going to wanna know who wrote it, the circumstances under which it was written, the culture and the time period within which it was written. When you encounter geographical terms, you're gonna wanna study those out. You're gonna wanna study the names of people that come up in the book and perhaps even the meaning of some of those names. You're gonna to wanna to divide the book into bite-sized pieces, sort of structured out and, and, and observe the flow of the text. You're going to then go into various chapters or paragraphs and you're gonna study meanings of words, meanings of theological terms. You're gonna ultimately extract universal application and then specific application to your life. So this is the extended process of inductive Bible study. And when we do that, the term we use is biblical theology. So when I'm doing, when I'm studying a book in its context, kind of tearing into a verse, that's called biblical theology. Now suppose as I'm reading through Job, I'm like, man, God happens to come up a lot in Job. Did you notice that? talks about God and his attributes. So I'd like to learn a little bit more about God. And in order to do that, I need to read the other 65 books of the Bible and study those. 
And as I go through the Bible, I'm gonna extract from each book, whatever it happens to say about God, what God is like, how God operates, what his purposes are. And I'm gonna have a big pile of verses on my table all about God. And I'm gonna now systematize them and think through them. So these are the passages that talk about God's person. And these are the passages that talk about the Trinity. And these are the passages that talk about God's attributes and God's purposes. And now I'm gonna do what's called systematic theology. I'm gonna systematize all these verses, all these teachings from the broad corpus of scripture into a systematic theology about God. And then I'm gonna do the same for the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and sin and salvation and human nature and angels and demons and Satan himself and the end times. So this is called systematic theology where we're here, there, everywhere in scripture and we're extracting truths here about God, here about God. And we're trying to come up with a a comprehensive understanding about these various subjects that are taught in scripture. And you can understand that this is sort of an overlapping ongoing process because I may arrive at a conclusion about God, but then later I'm studying Jesus Christ and I'm like, oh, I didn't realize Jesus was God. So now now I have to go back and adapt my understanding of who God is. And I, I, I didn't realize when I first started studying scripture that the Holy Spirit was God. So now I have a greater understanding of who God is. And I'm studying the nature of humanity over here. But in order to do that, I have to study the nature of human sinfulness over here. So you see how our theology sort of interweaves and intertwines. And as we're moving through our lives and studying more and more of scripture, we understand more and more and more about God. What we're going to be doing for the most part over the next several weeks is doing what's called systematic theology. We're gonna be looking at the broad teachings of scripture. It's gonna be topical in that respect and studying the different categories of Christian theology or Christian doctrine. And we're going to start with the doctrine of God. Now the doctrine of God is formerly called theology proper. All theology is about God. But theology proper is the study of God himself. Now, logically, logically, the first doctrine you should start with if you're going to study Christian theology is actually bibliology. What is the Bible like? Where does the Bible come from? What is the authoritative nature of scripture? So logically, you would start there in order to develop your theology proper But in terms of priorities, we start with theology proper. So here are a couple of creeds that Christians put together many, many, many centuries ago in response to some of the questions and challenges that they were experiencing in their day and age. The first one is from the second century AD, and it was called the Apostles' Creed. I'm sure you've all heard of that. It wasn't called the Apostles' Creed because the apostles wrote it. They were dead by then but it's called the Apostles' Creed because it captured, as best as the church could understand it, the teachings of the apostles. And the Apostles' Creed in the second century begins with this categorical statement about God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Anybody disagree with that? Pretty fundamental to our theology proper, to our view of God. In the fourth century, the late 300s, the church was struggling with something called Arianism. 
A false teacher arrived on the scene. He didn't affirm the full divinity of Jesus Christ. His following was growing, so the church had to get together and wrestle through their response to Arian theology. So they wrote what's called the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed also opens in a very similar fashion to the Apostles' Creed. They wrote, I believe in one God. So we're monotheists. We're one Godists. We just believe in one God. The Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. You're like, well, what about Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Well, the, the creed doesn't end there. It gets into a discussion about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But today we're just gonna focus on understanding the basic concepts and the scriptures that these early Christians would have went to in order to make these declarative statements with the church, the church universal believes. These statements are affirmed by the Orthodox Church, the Roman Church, and the Protestant Church. We all agree on this. So what is an Orthodox view of God? Well, here's how it starts. Number one, God exists, period. God exists. Every once in a while, you hear some crazy story of some Christian church that's being pastored by an atheist. It's like, what? By definition, to be a Christian is to affirm the existence of God. That's right out of the gates. So we affirm that God exists, period, and we accept his existence, the existence of God, by faith. I want to define faith for you because I think, sadly, many of us have been taught that faith is sort of the equivalent of sentimental drivel. It's like wishing, but not really knowing. It's something that happens in here, but not up here. That's not a biblical view of faith. We'll define it momentarily. But God exists, period. We accept his existence by faith. So let's start with the very first verse of the Bible to make this point. Genesis chapter one, verse one. What does it say? In the beginning, God created. It doesn't start off with a lengthy scientific treatise trying to prove from scientific experiments and mathematics the existence of God. It doesn't start, listen to this, with the created to prove the existence of the creator. It starts with the creator who then defines and brings into being the created. That's important in terms of order, really important. The Bible assumes the existence of God. We accept the existence of God as a presupposition, a starting point. And by the way, when we accept God as presupposition, all of life starts to make sense. When you remove God as presupposition and you presuppose that, well, unless I have scientific proof, unless I have archeological evidence, unless the created can become my ultimate source of authority for defining and affirming the creator, then he doesn't exist. See, that, see the categorical fallacy there? You're using something that God has created to try to prove that he exists. It's actually the other way around. 
And we'll discuss this more momentarily. What this does is this confuses the creator-creature relationship. The creator's existence is not contingent upon the created. The created's existence is dependent upon the creator. By definition, that's how you distinguish between creator and created, between God and creation. Now, having said all that, having said all that, there is evidence for God in that which he has made. There's evidence of God in that which has been made. God's method of evidencing himself, of making himself known is through something that we call revelation. In modern Western culture, we've taken this category of revelation and we've thrown it out the door. And instead we've replaced it with rational evidentialism. I've said, you know what? Our little pea brains are sufficient to figure out the world. And if we can't figure it out with our little pea brains, well, then God must not exist. It's rather arrogant to say the least, but it also fails to acknowledge that by definition, God cannot be fully known through this thing. And God cannot be fully known simply by observing that which he's created. In order to fully know God, you must have information divinely given to you from outside of the created order, revelation. And when God reveals himself to us, he does it in two fundamental ways. He reveals himself to us generally through creation to the point that we actually are responsible, accountable, and without excuse. And he also further reveals himself to us through special revelation, through the prophets and the apostles of old, through the written word of God. So when we presuppose God's existence as the scripture does, the way we need to understand this is that faith is our response, not to rational evidences, but faith is our response to revelation. So within the created order, you could say to me, Aaron, do you believe that two plus two equals four? And I'm like, um, okay, I'm gonna take two things out, put two beside it, one, two, three. Yeah, I believe that two plus two equals four. I believe that. But you wouldn't say, well, I'm having faith that two plus two equals four. I just believe it. One, two, three, four. I can see four created objects. You add them all up. I count them up. There's four of them. So there's many things in life that we encounter in the creator world that we believe in. But faith is like supra-belief. It's acknowledging, it's seeing, it's receiving something that's true, but also acknowledging that it was given to us from beyond the created order. That's faith. And it is gifted to us by God, but it's also a response to revelation to the point that no man can ever come to the end of his life and say, you know what, God, you didn't do enough to prove to me that you existed. I mean, I got ripped off. No one invited me to church. No one dropped a Bible in my hand. No, no preacher showed up in our town. Like, give me a break here. No one can say that. So check this out. Head on over to Romans chapter one. This is fascinating. If you want to understand a lot about God and human nature, you got to spend time in the first three chapters of Romans. It's a fascinating description. It's, when I read it, I'm like, was this written yesterday? It's, it's so universal in its application and description of human nature. 
So check this out. So God, as we've said, reveals himself through special revelation, but he also reveals himself in creation. And you might think, well, that's, that's a contradiction to what you said earlier. No, hold on for a moment. So check this out. Romans chapter one, verses 19 and 20, read as follows. For what can be known about God? And that's limited, of course, because of our intellects. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So right out of the gates, there is sufficient revelation given to us through our observation of the created world to point to the existence of God. How obvious is it? It's plain. It's plain. So you're like, okay, well then, can't we just look at creation to prove the existence of God? Well, hold on. It goes on to say, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, that's very similar to the word almighty, which is in the creeds, and divine nature have been clearly perceived. That sounds a lot like plain. He's made it plain. They're clearly perceived and clearly perceivable ever since the creation of the world. So from the very beginning, in the things that have been made, and then the application is, so they are without excuse. So this, this is very clear. It's not hard to perceive. It's not hard to understand. God has revealed himself to us in creation to the point that it's clear, it's understandable, and like it or not, you're morally accountable because of it. So there's not a human being in all of history that will one day stand before the judgment seat of God and say, come on, it wasn't obvious. No one gave me that, you know, the test tube, the test tube results that I was looking for. No one proved to me based upon mathematics that God exists. No one gave me that nice genealogical record that proves the existence of God and the universal flood and all that. Like no one invited me to an apologetic seminar. No one gave me the book Case for Christ. <laughs> no, there is enough revelation given to us by God in creation so that nobody will have an excuse and say, well, I didn't know. So then you scratch your head and you start thinking, well, then is, why do we need the Bible? Like, isn't observing the world enough? Well, here's what we learn. We've learned about God so far, how he reveals himself. We've learned about our moral responsibility, but there's something more we need to understand about us. So something happened in Genesis chapter three, and it's called the fall of mankind. And the consequences of that are greater than we can possibly understand greater than we can possibly understand. So if you go back up in Romans 1 to Romans 1, 18, while God has made himself clear, man by nature is disinterested. Disinterested. 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We drown it. The problem is not that God hasn't shown us. The problem is here. The problem is not with God. The problem is not with a lack of evidence. The problem is not in the proofs. The problem is with me. The problem is with you. That as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, by nature, we suppress the truth. We want to drown it. Glug, 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 glug. Hope it goes away. 
We want to push it away. We want to get rid of it. This is why we've often said we are literally rebels without a cause. It's not a lack of evidence that drives people towards atheism. It's not a lack of proof that drives people towards agnosticism. It's not a lack of God making it clear that drives people into polytheism. The problem is here. You're like, well, I guess we're done for then. Well, read on while we suppress the truth, while we drown the truth, while the problem is with us, there's something about God that is unrelenting. And fundamentally, one of the things we need to emphasize and we often do in our preaching and our hymnology is God's grace. God's grace really is amazing. Somebody should write a song about that, by the way. God's grace is amazing because if you head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, we've learned that God has revealed himself. We've learned that we suppress the truth. We learned that we are morally culpable for suppressing the truth. We learned that in our unrighteousness, we're not interested in the truth. But God doesn't say, okay, then you're done. I created the world. The world fell. I'm just going to consign the whole thing to hell right now and have, be, be over and done with it. But look how God responds to the brokenness of our world. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, the natural person, meaning the fallen person, this is post-fall. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. You're not morally neutral, folks. You're not born tabla rasa, blank slate, with the potential to go in this direction or that. That's not what scripture teaches. The natural man, by nature, we're disinterested. We're interested in worship. Oh, that, we're very much interested in that, of ourselves, of others, of false gods, of more lenient versions of Jesus. But the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They seem ridiculous. You ever preach the gospel to someone? They're like, that's ridiculous. That's foolish. That's the natural man. It's too easy. It doesn't make sense. It's not scientifically verifiable. We live in a pluralistic world. How can you possibly know? It's arrogant and intolerant. You know, you've heard of all the excuses. You strip away the packaging and it's the same issue. The natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So how is it that we as Christians know truth? We have the spirit of God. We've been born again. We've been regenerated. Think about that language, made new. We are new creatures in Christ. Something has happened to us. We just believe the right thing. We've been born again, made anew. The spirit of God lives inside of us. So now we read scripture like, it makes sense. I didn't see that before. I, I was resistant to it. I, di I didn't really believe God was gracious. I didn't really believe that he created the world. I didn't really believe that I'm a sinner. I didn't really believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. But it's like a veil's been torn off and the world makes sense to me now. That's a spiritual gift as a result of God's grace. So God exists. He's revealed himself to us. All fallen men naturally push him away. 
but God graciously reveals himself to us, which leads us into the next thing I wanna talk about, which is God's attributes. What is it about God that causes him to be gracious? Because he's gracious. What is the definition of love? Can you define love without God? Though the world does, love is love. Huh? What does that mean? God is love. You can never fully understand love. You can never be a great lover unless you understand who God is as a God of love and love him in return. He's the baseline for love. He's the baseline for grace. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of forgiveness. We'll discuss in future weeks, Trinitarian theology a little bit more, but I just want to give you a little bit of a summary here because this is really important, very practical. So we believe in how many gods? One, never say three. (laughs) One God, the Lord your God is one, one and only one. Okay, so he's one. What is, what is his nature? What, what is he like as a being, as one God? Well, as we study scripture, we discover that God is unlike anything in creation. His, his being, his makeup is not like yours and mine. It's not like vegetation. It's not like geology. It, there's something about God. We accept this by faith as a mystery It's a mystery, not because it's not true. It's a mystery because it's hard to wrap our mind around something we've never experienced in the created world. God is one eternal being who has three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing in perfect fellowship, in perfect unity, in perfect relationship. The father's not the son, the son's not the spirit, the spirit's not the father. There's a distinction in personhood, but there's, they are one in essence. They are equally God. 100% God is the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Not 33% each. They're fully God. Christ is fully God. The Father's fully God, the Spirit's fully God, but there's one God. It's like, okay, that's hard to understand. Yeah, because there's nothing like that in all of creation. And we learn by analogy. There's nothing analogous to that. So it is hard to understand, but that's how the scriptures present God. So here's where it gets super practical. In Islamic theology, some people have said, well, Muslims believe in the same God that we do, Allah. Really? How many gods do they believe in? One. Okay, so you believe in God and they believe in God. They call him Allah and you call him God, but he's one God, right? Yeah. Is he all powerful? Yeah. Is he compassionate? Yeah. But here's the difference between our understanding of God and Islamic understanding of God. In Islamic theology, God is a static one, meaning he is one God that has always existed, but within his essence, there's no personhood. So their understanding would be that God existed forever and ever and ever and ever and ever prior to the creation of the world as a static one with no relationality in and of himself by himself. Well, think about this. How could a static God who existed forever before the world was created even have the capacity to engage in relationships when in his essence, there's nothing relational about it. He's a static one. There's no love, 
because there's no relationship within which he needed to love. But in the Trinitarian concept of God, God is one being, one essence, but there is perfect fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever. God wasn't lonely, folks. That's not why he created you. He was perfectly satisfied with himself as three persons within divine, one divine essence. And when he created us, now we know he has the capacity to be in relationship with you because he was in eternal relationship with himself. This is the beauty of God. And God extends then that love, that grace, and that mercy to us. By the way, these, these attributes are what we call relational attributes or communicable attributes. A communicable attribute is an attribute that God has perfectly. He's perfect love. He's perfect grace. He's perfect in forgiveness. He's perfect in justice. And to a lesser degree, he can pass that on to you so that you can also act as such. So a communicable attribute is like, God is love, therefore you should love others. God is forgiving, therefore you should forgive others. God is just, therefore you should be just. You're never gonna be perfect in your expression of those attributes. You have them in a limited capacity. But God, when we look to God and we learn that he's loving, gracious, and merciful, that means, well, I'm supposed to be. But then there are incommunicable attributes that God possesses. Notable among those are omniscience. He knows everything. How many of you know everything? You don't. How many of you have the capacity to potentially know everything? You don't even have the capacity to potentially know everything, even if you could be exposed to all truth. God is omnipresent. How many of you are omnipresent? No, we're localized. I'm standing on this particular tile at this point in history. I'm not on that tile. You're sitting in that chair, not that chair. We're localized beings. We're not omnipresent. God is omnipotent, potency. He's all powerful. He is perfectly holy. He has absolute perfection. We, we can't have those things. We'll never be omnipresent. We'll never be omniscient. We'll never be omnipotent. Those are incommunicable attributes that God has. Like, well, so what? Well, if you think about this from an applicational perspective, the fact that God has these communicable attributes that are supposed to affect our behavior means that God is the standard for how we act and always will be. Not the church, not me, not your creeds, but ultimately God is the standard for how you should act. So if you're living your life and you're like, I wanna live my life successfully, I wanna live my life for God, you have to study theology. Because if you don't know God, you'll never be able to figure it out. Do you think the immoral state that we live in really has the capacity to legislate morality that sticks? No, they have no source. See, now you can hear the lie. Love is love. What's the authority of that? Don't be a racist. Why not? Love your neighbor, do the right thing. Why should I? What's the standard for my behavior? If you don't have God as the standard for behavior, it's all whimsical. Just lick your finger and put it up in the air. What, what morality is in, in, in vogue today? Which way is the wind blowing? 
But God is the standard for eternal morality because of his communicable attributes. Part B is because of his incommunicable attributes, God is always and forever worthy of your worship and homage. Now and into all of eternity. When I was a kid, I used to think, I'd like to go to heaven, but isn't it kind of get, gonna get boring after a couple million years worshiping God? Kind of have it all figured out, have asked all my questions by then. Folks, you have no idea the depth and the riches and the profundity of God's greatness and goodness and love. You will be able to spend forever with him and you will never ever yawn. You'll never fall asleep. I know you fall asleep during my sermons frequently, but you'll never fall asleep. That's how great and awesome God is. So he is both the standard for our behavior and also the object of our worship and our praise and our obedience. Secondly, we affirm the almighty power of God, the creed's state, and this is true, that he's the father almighty or the almighty. This doesn't mean that the spirit and son aren't almighty. The the creeds go on, We'll, 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 we'll get to that. But when we speak of God without distinction of personhoods, we often speak of the father, which is how the creed begins. And he's described as an almighty God. Think all dash mighty. He's mighty over all. A great passage that teaches this is Exodus 6, 3. God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, or in German, Jehovah, I did not make myself known to them. So at this point in time, God had not revealed his covenantal name. So when God reveals himself, he can reveal himself to us as God. So there are several, shall we say, more generic titles for God. And this one is God Almighty. Have you heard the word El Shaddai? That's this. When there's an El, Elohim, God, Dan El, that little appendix is, is to do with God. El, Elohim, El Shaddai are the generic terms for God. God is, has revealed himself to the world as God Almighty. Now in his covenantal interactions with us, he furthers his revelation of himself by revealing himself to us as Yahweh God. But most fundamental, apart from his relationships, apart from his revelation of himself as Yahweh, apart from his redemptive work in the world, the baseline description of who God is, is he is God Almighty. In fact, can you be God and not be almighty? You can't be. It's it's a violation of the term. So God is God almighty. This is a necessary doctrine that points to his power and his might. He has absolute power over all things. Some of you might consider yourself mighty men. Probably not a whole lot of women thinking of themselves as mighty women, but maybe there are a few. But the reason why you might consider yourself strong or mighty is because when you compare yourself with others, you're more physically talented than they are. But that's strength by comparison. You're not almighty just because you're stronger than everyone else in the room. If I have two cats on the stage and it's exhibit A, a domestic house cat, and exhibit B, a lion, they're both cats, which one's stronger? The lion is significantly more strong than the domestic house cat. But the lion's not almighty. Only God is almighty. 
He's mightier than, he's not mightier than most other things. He's all mighty. Why does that matter? Well, it means he will be forever enthroned. Lots of people trying to take God off his throne. Ain't going to happen. Lots of people claiming to be the king of the world, the emperor of the universe, the the master of their own fate. (laughs) God is forever enthroned. And it's his almighty characteristic that ensures that for us. He's also trustworthy. Think about this. Good theology leads to doxology, leads to practice. I'm going through some tough times in life. I'm questioning my circumstances, questioning my identity. I'm questioning, he's almighty. He's got it taken care of. I'm just gonna trust in him. Do I understand? Maybe not, probably not. Do I have the capacity to solve this problem? Not likely or no, but God is almighty. So this affects our response to him, our fellowship. He's also protective. He protects his own. Like a father, if he has the capacity, is always going to protect his wife, is always going to protect his children from harm. But it's limited. That's why our kids still get hurt. That's why sometimes our families get abused because we have limited capacity. God is almighty. So this truth, folks, is not just pie in the sky. It affects everyday life. And finally and thirdly, the creeds affirm that God creates all things, and he does. Now, within the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is the task of the eternal Son, who is known as the Logos, to create. Or you can read Colossians, it speaks about this. But for our purposes, let's go to John 1. And in John 1, verses 1 to 2, speaking of the incarnation of God in Christ, It starts off with similar language to Genesis 1. You make the mental parallel. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the word. It's like that rings a bell because after it said in the beginning, God created, he spoke. He spoke day one, habitat into existence. Day two, habitat into existence. Day three, habitat into existence. Day four, inhabitants to fill the habitat. Day five, inhabitants to fill the habitat. Day six, inhabitants to fill the habitat. So you're making the connection. The one that is spoken of here is the word is the one that spoke the habitat and the inhabitants into existence. In the beginning was the word, the text read, and the word was with God. Okay, so he was just God's pal. No, no, no. He was with God and the word was God. Well, that's interesting. He's both with and was This is part of our Trinitarian theology. He was in the beginning with God. All things, not some things, all things were made through him and without him. So in the positive, made through him in the negative. Without him was not anything made that was made. So this passage affirms the full deity of Jesus Christ as the eternal God. I don't normally do this, but I want to get a little bit technical with you for a moment. And the reason why I want to get technical with you is because the Jehovah's Witnesses, just like the Arians of old, deny the full deity of Jesus Christ. 
And they often go to this passage and they've retranslated the New World Translation. And it says to the effect that the word was ah, God. Hmm, interesting. So what, what does the text actually teach? Well, we have here the word was God in English. And this is a literal translation of the following Greek words. Theos, hain, ho, lagos. I give that to you in Greek because I want you to hear with your ear two things. Theos, logos. Notice the endings are the same. So in, in the English language, when we are speaking, we rely on word order, not the morphology, not the way a word is written, but the word order to determine, is this noun a subject, a possessive modifier, an indirect object, or a direct object? Word order. So for example, if I say to you in a simple sentence, Aaron threw a ball. Who is doing the throwing? Aaron. So I'm the subject. I'm at the beginning of the sentence. The fact that the second noun, the ball, comes after the verb tips you off. Okay, this is, this is the object of the action. And I have a little in, in, indefinite article there, a ball, which means any old ball. If I want to be specific, I would say the ball, a definite article. Now, if I flipped it around and I said ball through Aaron, it sound weird, but the ball would then become the subject and Aaron would be the object. But whether Aaron is the subject or the object, you spell his name the same way. Ball is spelled the same, whether it's serving as the subject or whether it's serving as the object. But in Greek, the way it works is they change the ending of the word. So if I want the word theos to be in the subject case, I say theos. If I want it to be plural, I say theoi or theon or theus or theon. I change the ending. So in this text, you can hear it with your own ear, even if you don't study Greek, theos, hein, ho, lagos. Both of them are in the subject case, the nominative case. They're both masculine and they're both singular. It's not gods, it's not words, it's singular. And there's one article in here, ho, meaning the, that governs both nouns. So in, in, we've got to kind of switch the word order around to make it sound English. But we would say the word was not a God because that article governs both nouns. The word was literally the God. Or we don't put the word down, then we just say God. So this passage is affirming the full deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not described in the scriptures as a God. That would be contrary to monotheism. You got to throw a whole boatload of verses out to become a polytheist. And Jesus is not God's little boy. Jehovah's Witnesses will often take you to Colossians and be like, oh, he's the firstborn over all creation. That means he's created. That was the first one out of the, out of the gates. It's like, no. Firstborn is a term that refers to superiority, the firstborn son. It's about primogeniture. It's about the lion's share of the estate. It's a term that refers to his absolute role as the inheritor of the kingdom. So the Bible throughout never teaches that Jesus is a God. 
It teaches that Jesus, the eternal word, is God, and he spoke the world into existence. How much of it? All of it. Also, he didn't just oversee it like the theistic evolutionists would teach. He didn't just sort of stand back and watch evolutionary processes taking their... No, it says he created it. He spoke it into existence. Now, this is super cool. Think about this. Day one, he speaks and matter materializes. Day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. Squirrels were created by him speaking them into existence. Trees spoke them into existence. Water spoken into existence. Land spoken into existence. Rocks spoken into existence. How were you created? By a direct act with his own hands from the earth. And then from the man, the woman. Isn't that interesting? This demonstrates God's intimate engagement with us as the pinnacle of his creation within the material world. Lesser than the angels, but within the material world. God took the dirt from the ground and he shaped the first man. And then out of that man, Eve. And this builds upon our view that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And we do have the capacity by his spirit to put into practice the communicable attributes of God. Because what was lost in the fall is regained through Christ as we've been made new creatures in Christ. It's all tying together, folks. It all, it all dovetails together. Here we have the eternal word. Matter did not evolve by chance. God oversaw it. Even Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth. Ends of the earth means all of it. Every little detail. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He is the creator of everything. Anytime someone steps forward and says, well, maybe God just oversaw the processes. Maybe, maybe the world wasn't created by a direct act of God. Maybe he just showed up and there was a primordial stew sort of brewing and bubbling away and it just sort of erupted into everything that we see. No. That's a violation of historical orthodoxy. It literally is heresy. Not to mention very bad science. So the wonderful thing is we can have fellowship with him because he created us intimately. And he's, it's very clear here that God created both the visible and the invisible. Nicaea stated that categorically. I can't see air, kind of feel it, sort of, but I know, he cre- I know he created it. God created the angels, the celestial beings. When? Don't really know. We know that in Job 38, seven, the angels were shouting for joy as God was laying the foundations of the earth. So they were either created right right in that beginning or prior to the creation of the material world they were created, but God created them as well. And all for his glory and for his grandeur. They were shouting at the beginning of the world, praise to God as he was creating We are to do the same. When we look at the sky, the handiwork, everything that God has made, we're supposed to be vertical in our orientation, praising him and honoring honoring him for what he has done. Now, let me end here. Suppose that you say, you know what? This is too brainy. I'm just more of a practical person. 
I'm more into the experiential side of my faith. Why would I want to study God? What's the point? Well, did you know there's very dire consequences to not studying God? If we go back to Romans chapter one, I wanna read two more verses for you. Romans chapter one, we have this very dark description of human depravity and sin, just all sorts of nasty sexual immorality and idolatry and self-worship taking place. And there God says in Romans 1, 24, therefore God gave them up. It's like, okay, you wanna sin? Have at it. Let me know how that goes for you. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to, dis, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Instead of seeing their bodies as a stewardship, it's just, this is my opportunity. This is my instrument for hedonistic pleasure. But listen to this, verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth. The truth about God for a lie. What fundamental truth did they exchange about God for a lie? What was the lie? And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They just took God and they made the creature God. Everybody's a worshiper. Nobody has ever been born. Nobody's ever existed in planet if it's not a worshiper. Atheists, I don't worship anything. Yeah, you do. You worship yourself, your intellect, your science, your proofs. Your moral compass is pointing back at yourself. Everybody worships something. Maybe not in a formal religion, but everybody worships something. And if you don't worship the creator, what are you left with? The creature something in the material world. Those are your two options. I either worship the creator or I worship the creature. It's just a matter of switching it out. And when that happens, life falls apart. If you want your life to be an absolute disaster, relationally chaotic, morally chaotic, get rid of God. That's what culture's doing. But if you want your life to be ordered, to make sense, you want to live by wisdom, by necessity, you have to get your worship right. This is why in many respects, all of these cultural wars that we are fighting folks are worship wars. They're worship wars. Who are we going to worship? Who's my God? Is the state my God? Am I my God, my body, my choice? Who is God? Is science my God? Trust the science, trust the are, the, are the technocrats my God? There's a lot of people out there vying for God's job. And when that happens, the wheels fall off the cart and life becomes a disaster. But when we get our worship right and we're worshiping God, he is forever blessed and we are blessed as well. So grow in your understanding of God study who he is, study his words, study his ways, study his promises, and then think about what does that mean? How does it affect the way I think, the way I feel, and the way I act? Be blessed as a result. 